Hello everybody, welcome to the Security SOS 2021 webinar series. I'm Paul Ducklin. Today my guest is Fraser Howard. Fraser, I always like to describe as the malware specialist in everything. Fraser, welcome back to the SOS series. Hi Duck, good to be here. Uh, today's topic, as you can see, is the intriguing sounding Malware, the never-ending story. Why we chose that topic, that was actually me remembering it. This is going back to the, the, the late 80s or the early 90s. It was a year when we'd had, we got to, I think it was, we were only in March and we'd already had 28 viruses. <laughs> and, you know, a colleague said, wow, you're really busy at the moment. But what do you think you'll do when this fad burns out? And I'm still wondering what the answer is to that question. Because it really has turned into a never-ending story, hasn't it, Fraser? It has. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I think even 10, 15 years ago, we still counted things. And things then were in the, yes. in, in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands. I think nowadays I, I, I've stopped counting. There's just too much. Particularly when the crooks, they're often not delivering those malware samples by themselves, are they? They're working in an environment where there's an an affiliate network, if you like. The core malware creators, the, the crooks at the core of it, like if you look at the ransomware gangs, write the malware, and then they recruit a whole load of affiliates to go out and do the dirty work with it. Yeah, exactly that. And people build all sorts of services around this whole kind of um, ecosystem that provide them additional capabilities, you know, from simple capabilities like using kind of obfuscation and packing techniques to try and make their, their creation less easy to detect and even worse some of the packing technologies that the malware authors use the first time you see them or if you show them to someone who's technical but hasn't looked at them before they'll go well that's easy to detect it's so suspicious but yet some of the tools they use are also used for packing and copy protection on legitimate software yeah that's the annoying part where benign kind of legitimate software uses those very same tools which makes it hard, hard for humans and also hard for techno technology like you know, deep learning. It makes it harder to train automation where the legitimate and the malicious files have very similar characteristics. In terms of this sort of malware as a service where affiliates are being recruited, it's way more than just ransomware, isn't it? There are whole market niches in the cybercrime ecosystem where different malware service providers provide different sorts of tools. Yes, definitely. And in many senses, if you're, if you're um, a cyber criminal looking to maybe steal data, you probably like the fact that ransomware is taking all the headlines. Cybercrime history is full of cases where one or a few kind of notorious criminal groups or a few notorious threats have the sole kind of focus of law enforcement and press and the reality is behind that, under the radar, if you like, there's, there has always been a whole bunch of other threats that in many cases might be as, if not more important and more of a risk to lots of people out there. The crooks that unleashed that ransomware attack finally lit the blue touch paper in July. It may have been in your network since April, March, yeah. or even December of the year before. Yeah. And who knows what else they've done. They've almost certainly created new accounts so they can get back in later. They've probably stolen all your trophy data. 
They've almost certainly wiped out all the backups they can in case you think you can recover without paying. And who knows how many keystrokes they've logged and how many passwords they've captured during that time. It can be very hard to tell after the fact, can't it? So you mentioned keystrokes there. And actually, it's funny because um, I remember a few years ago doing a demo of some, what at that time was some notorious piece of malware. And actually, we then got into conversation and talking about, you know, simplistic kind of keylogging trojans and how that type of malware is one of the most insidious kind of threats that you can have in your network. And if you think of the type of data that you type, and if someone's harvesting that data on a kind of continual basis, it's very easy to can see how essentially you can you know, lose credentials, lots of kind of sensitive IP data, and lots of threats today and lots of attacks and lots of the ransomware attacks they get onto a network at some point and from there they kind of coordinate the rest of the attack. In many cases, that initial access is through stolen credentials, essentially credentials that have been stolen by one cybercriminal and then sold online to facilitate crime from others. And on that same topic, things that just take simple screenshots and take a screenshot every few minutes or every hour. Again, lots of very sensitive data can be stolen and maybe that data then enables a a second attacker to potentially um, access those those systems or realize there's some kind of highly prized data that could be available on those systems. Fraser, I just want to jump back to something you mentioned earlier about the, you know, these criminal operations where there's a service that's provided. Talk to us a little bit about perhaps one of the more infamous malware as a service groups, namely Emotet. Yes, the notorious Emotet. Um, So that was one of the good stories that came out of this year. In January of this year, um, multiple law enforcement organisations worked together to take out a lot of the infrastructure that that was being used by Emotet. And as weeks, months have ticked on since then, they essentially took out that particular threat from me. Emotet itself had been, um, I say notorious, that's an understatement, for probably 12, 18, 24 months was certainly the number one non-ransomware threat family that was regularly discussed by law enforcement, by you know, various kind of news articles and the like. And that was primarily due to the, the aggressive nature um, in which the attackers kind of sought to maintain their, their presence, the size of their botnet, through things like aggressive spam campaigns to continually infect new victims and essentially conscript new victim, victims into their botnet. And also the way in which Emotet itself was used as a malware delivery service. Basically, infected machines had other malware pushed to them. So the bad guys were essentially using that network as a means to distribute other malware. Other people would pay them money to to, to push malware through their botnet. Yes, because for many attacks, the Emotet malware family and the Emotet service, that was the beginning of an attack that may have led to ransomware, wasn't it? Because Emotet wasn't about ransomware. It was, how would you describe it? It's malware delivery malware, basically. Essentially, yes. Yeah, once part of that botnet, you as the victim would be completely unaware that your machine was infected. The malware was designed to run in the background. There was nothing visible. There was no visible damage in terms of file encryption, in terms of messages. It was simply a service that was running alongside all the other hundreds of Windows services in the background. But this particular service was used by the bad guys to push other malicious activity later on. Waiting for some other gang of crooks to come along. Say to the Emotet guys, I need a thousand 
infected computers by tomorrow all in one network. What have you got? And they'd say, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. How much are you willing to pay? And then they'd use their botnet, which is, in case you're wondering, that's short for robot network. And the Enematech guys would just deliver pre-infected computers to paying, air quotes, customers. Yeah. And Emotet certainly was not the first kind of malware family to do this, far from it. It was just one of the more recent ones, and they did it in a way where they did it very effectively. And so they were individually responsible for quite a lot of you know, victims being hit with a whole variety of different threats. Just to be clear, for those of our listeners who are wondering, well, how can botnets be controlled through a firewall? Because particularly if you're on a small network or a home network, you've probably got a router that doesn't allow incoming connections. Many ISPs even prohibit that. You can't set it up even if you want. Modern zombies or bots, in fact, for years, they just don't work that way, do they? They don't wait for the crooks to send them instructions. They just regularly and gently call home, possibly to one of thousands of ever-varying servers, so it's not obvious where they're going, and download the instructions on, dear boss, what should I do next? Yes, and they typically use typically use HTTPS, and so it just blends in with other web traffic that's also using HTTPS from the victim machine. So it can be very hard to spot. So the Emotech guys, the malware delivery malware experts, they got taken down. Uh, what happened next? Because often you see that as soon as, almost as soon as one gang gets gets taken out, either they don't get arrested, their servers may get killed off, and they just pop up with a new name somewhere else, or somebody else figured, woohoo, that's my competitive advantage, and new crooks fill the vacuum. What happened after the Emotet takedown? Yes, the next chapter in this story, and the one that people expect to hear, is what threat family fills that void as soon as Emotet has gone. And the reality is, you know, the, there are multiple threat families that are already doing something similar to Emotet, even whilst Emotet is active. And no doubt, though, those same threat families have, to whatever extent, filled that void. To date, there isn't a single one that stands out as kind of having replaced Emotet. Um, but there's a few kind of notorious families, several of which have been spoken about and posted about on Naked Security. Families like um, Bure Loader, Drydex, Bizarre Loader. These families, again, are used and some of their functionality enables the bad guys to kind of use them as a service to distribute other components of malware and other parts of an attack. I guess that's a sort of important reminder that malware detection and prevention is not all about the shiny visible stuff for example let's say we got rid of all ransomware we'd still have to worry about all the other malware of the past the problem really retains the sort of cumulative history of all the malware that went before it does and actually that's an interesting example you just brought up there so in some senses for a well-protected network using kind of some of the technologies that are available in today's security products Actually, ransomware is quite hard. You know, technologies like CryptoGuard can make it really hard for the bad guys to actually encrypt your data. Partly for that reason, ransomware authors, the attackers, have already shifted to what we call double extortion type models, where rather than yes. just encrypting your data, actually they're siphoning off your network. They're copying it off your network somewhere up into the cloud, and they're still looking to blackmail you. They're still looking to extort money from you, but not to get your data back after having been encrypted, but 
to stop you as the attacker publicly exposing their data because you've already stolen it. So, for instance, we've already we've spoken about Emotet, the malware delivery malware guys, but there's a whole, not exactly a new kid on the block, but perhaps a new term for many people is the so-called supply chain attack, where you fetch software from what you think is a trusted source, but instead of attacking you, the crooks have attacked that person upstream from you. How's that panning out? <laughs> yeah, again, it's, it's, it's a technique that's been around for a long time. And actually, the, in, over the last few months, we've seen kind of two major attacks that have used it. First one, just before Christmas, with the SolarWinds attack, where criminals who had managed to compromise that kind of software chain were able to subsequently hit people that were already using that software. Um, and more recently, just a couple of, a few weeks ago, in fact, in the Kaseya ransomware attack, where people who are using Kaseya software, that software was used to distribute, um, push malicious commands, which initiated a ransomware attack. So from the bad guy's point of view, you can see why it's so attractive. Earlier on, we spoke about initial access. How does the attacker get onto a network and potentially kind of laterally move across that network in order to then deliver their attack? Actually, supply chain can solve that problem for them entirely. So in the case of the Kaseya attack, you know, this Kaseya agent was already running on lots of these endpoints. And by compromising higher up the chain, the bad guys are able to basically issue their malicious commands across all of the machines that were running that particular software. So that just solves the problem for the attacker of that initial access, gives them it for free. So loosely speaking, from a software point of view, a supply chain attack kind of simply means that instead of attacking you directly, the crooks just attack someone one or two or three steps up the chain where you fetch stuff that you assume you can trust because you're not downloading it from some weird link that someone just sent you in an email. Yes, exactly. And essentially, to all intents and purposes, that software is backdoored. Yeah. You're using legitimate software, but there's essentially a backdoor in that software that allows cyber criminals to use that software to deliver something bad. And this is a particular problem for software development teams, isn't it? In the modern era where, you know, if you're using languages like Python or JavaScript or Ruby or something like that. Yes. And you've got Ruby Gems, NPM, PyPy, these package manager tools that go out to essentially to the public cloud, download often open source packages that are meant to be open to everybody. So it actually requires quite a big attention to detail by development, quality assurance, build engineering teams inside software companies. And it's very interesting. If you think about some of the, you know, if, if you're a cyber criminal group looking to attack a very high profile organization, we already know those groups, they invest months, years, they invest hundreds of thousands, probably millions of pounds in kind of looking to target those particular organizations. Actually, if you think about it, supply chain type attacks is a very powerful way of hitting those very same organizations. So rather than dedicating all that effort into building up your attack weaponry, if you like, you could invest that same into kind of building up, you know, developers with high reputation on some of these open source projects, contributing positively, only for some point in time to drop to, to drop a back door in somewhere. It's, it's, it's a perfectly plausible scenario in terms of how these attacks might go in the future. So one way, one way to attack 
a single business is to find some software module that's used by a million businesses that have no reason to distrust it, attack all the million businesses, and one of them just happens to be the victim you really wanted. And the flip side of that is if you're the kind of crook that wants to attack a million businesses, you can either attack them one at a time, like the CryptoLocker ransomware guys used to do back in, what was it, 2013? Or you can go, okay, let's find the common watering hole and let's go and poison that. So supply chain attacks can actually be used for broadening and deepening attacks, possibly even at the same time. Yes. And as you said at the start, they're very, very hard for the good guys to to defend against. Common sense, good practice in terms of what extensions you trust and what tools you kind of maybe merge into your projects or even within the actual kind of the tooling that you use, maybe your kind of development environment, what extensions you might choose to use. All of those kind of considerations become important because when you choose to kind of use one of those extensions, as you said, it's probably doing exactly what you described. It's connecting out to the internet pulling down some third-party code, but actually, how could it be abused by by an attacker as well? Yes, and it's not just the case that the crooks will poison the code that you download to build into your own software. They can poison the package that you download so that the malware runs when you install or update the package. Yes. And now the crooks haven't poisoned one particular build you've made, they've poisoned your whole build environment for next time as well. Yes, and we've seen attacks like that in the past where they've targeted certain certain build environments or certain high-level languages in a way to hit organisations that build and ship packages to customers. Fraser, perhaps this is a good time, given that we've just opened up this huge number of ways you can deliver the malware. Maybe this is a good time to talk about something that's getting a lot of popularity these days, and that is an attempt to codify all this, namely the MITRE AT-ACK framework, which is A-T-T ampersand C-K. Tell us something about that, because I know you've been doing a lot of work with the so-called attack framework, which is a framework for defense, not actually for attack, uh, lately. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we talk about attacks and we talk about how threats work and inevitably these conversations become quite detailed quite quickly, quite technical quite quickly. And actually to lots of people that aren't involved in cybersecurity, it can be hard to follow and hard to kind of properly characterise, well, what exactly are you talking about? And so the, basically the, the MITRE attack framework is, is, is essentially it's a knowledge base. Now MITRE is run by the US Public Service. It's a US government thing, isn't it? Correct, yes. And the, and the framework provides basically tactics and techniques based on real-world observations. So observations into how attacks actually happen, what different techniques the attackers use, and trying to basically break that down and providing a structure by which we can label things, basically. So you have, for example, tactics like execution, initial access, uh, lateral movement, discovery, command and control and there's a variety of other ones as well and within each one of these tactics you have a whole variety of different techniques as well so for example um, brute forcing would be a, a one particular tactic that's where you try every possible password rather than just guessing the most likely eight yes sniffing network traffic using windows management instrumentation there's literally hundreds of these different techniques 
And basically, the matrix provides a, a labeling structure. So when we, for example, block some malicious activity on a machine, we make an effort to try and associate that block with the most appropriate technique. And again, that, that can be useful for the customer that has that protection event firing within their, their organization because they can then use that technique reference to better understand what type of activity is being blocked in this in, the, in this particular incident. Which also tells them, if they want to do threat hunting, where's the right place to look? Yes, and perhaps most crucially as well, by adopting the, 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 the attack kind of matrix framework, it, it's a common language as well across different security products. And so technique ABC is technic, technique ABC, regardless of which particular security product might have referred to it. So it provides that kind of common language, which makes it easier for, again, easier for customers and for security teams and incident response teams to essentially talk the same language when they're kind of trying to identify characteristics of an attack. Yes, because malware and threat vocabulary, for want of a better word, has always been a bit of a problem, hasn't it? Right back to the 1980s. Is it the Italian virus? Is it the bouncing ball (laughs) virus? Or is it the ping pong virus? Is it the stoned virus or the New Zealand virus? The way we see uh, MITRE-related labelling and classification being used will change drastically in the next 12, 24 months. Um, and it will become a much more integral part of how organizations manage their protection, but more importantly, as you just touched on, manage their response to malware incidents or even just user activity, users, users doing maybe unusual or inappropriate kind of actions on their, on their machines, even without malicious intent. Yes, things that could open up a hole that they never intended. Yes. But didn't think of. So Fraser, to finish up, because I'm conscious of time, I'd actually like to look at this whole threat response idea. These days, just relying on find the malware, detect the malware, block the malware, remediate the malware, print a log, pat yourself on the back, get ready for next week's attacks. That doesn't work anymore, does it? Because often Attacks may be done deliberately by the crooks just so they can sound out your defences. So even if you successfully defend today, what you could be looking at is actually a little bit of a hint that something much worse is likely to happen tomorrow. Yes, and that's, a, that's actually a very, very common scenario. And so the, the biggest change between those times you talk about and today is actually human-led attacks. So we talk about human adversaries. And what we're really talking about is one or more cyber criminals who already have presence within your network. They've already got in. Maybe it's an unmanaged machine. Maybe it's a machine without security patches. Maybe it's a machine where the security has been disabled. Regardless of any of that, the attacker is already on the network. They're going to then use that persistence, use that presence to map out the network, to laterally move across the network, um, and ultimately to deliver their attack. And let's be clear, at this point, there are no flaming skulls on your website homepage Correct. to give away that the crooks are in your network. Yeah. Because it's a human-led attack, it's not like their software pretending to be sysadmins. If they've managed to promote themselves to an administrator account, they basically are sysadmins. <laughs> yes. They're just not your sysadmins, unfortunately. Yeah, and so what you tend to find is you tend to find that they, they, they try and initiate an attack and a good security product will block that, that attack. 
but actually they're still on the network and so they retry something different and they can continually they can continually kind of repeat this whole process until eventually they win and so whatever security product you have has to succeed 100% of the time to prevent that particular attack succeeding and so this is where services like managed threat response can help because they can recognize these early signs of that type of attack and they can essentially boot that person off the network and remediate that attack before the, the truly malicious part of that attack is, is delivered, be it ransomware, data theft or whatever. And just booting them off the network, even that's not enough, is it? No. Because you have to sort of get in your, what I like to call the network time machine and sort of go backwards and see when these guys were making themselves sysadmins, they probably created a few other accounts. Yeah. And they probably spent the time to learn what your network and account naming system looks like. So if they've created fake accounts, they're not going to have weird or outrageous names. They're going to look like somebody else on the network. Like they really do try to blend in, don't they? Is that, that, that's what we call living off the land, isn't it? It is using tools, ideally, that are already present on these systems. Or if they are introducing new tools kind of minimizing the amount of those tools that they're introducing to this to the victim machines. And it's all to stay sub-radar. And as you said, any good managed threat response service, aside from just kind of getting these criminals off your network, they will then try to kind of work out, okay, well, what did they do? What can we what do we need to undo? And also, perhaps most crucially, how did they get onto the network in the first place? Exactly. What was it about your security posture that made it easy or made it possible for them to get onto the network? And so, you know, the case is not really closed until all of those kind of ducks are lined up, if you like. Fraser, let's let's finish up then by me asking you, if you're a business, you don't have a huge amount of time and money left over, but you figure, I actually want to get into this modern threat hunting mindset rather than just thinking of security as a sort of set and forget thing, which never really worked well, but definitely doesn't now. What would your primary advice be? If the budget allowed, I would use a managed threat response type service. So use people with the skill set to essentially manage all these indicators that are flowing from your network and essentially give you a heads up, a heads up warning to potential or imminent attacks. It is not an admission of defeat, is it? Not at all, no. It's, it's, it's essentially acknowledging the real threat that pretty much all businesses face today. If that isn't in budget, my focus will be on using the security product that you deploy effectively. So visibility, maintaining visibility of, of what's happening in the network. So, you know, make somebody in IT responsible for keeping track of what's going on in your dashboard. You know, don't live with a security environment where 20, 30, 40 alerts are going through each day, each week, and no one's really following up. Like in any well-managed environment, you will have a good handle on what is normal. And finally, control. You know, use some of the tools that your security application almost certainly already offers that you might not yet use. Use the control features that, for example, your operating system might provide to help lock down systems. Help empower your employees to get their work done, but actually to treat your systems with respect. Because, as we like to say on the Naked Security podcast, when it comes to cybersecurity, sometimes an injury to one really can be an injury to all. Yes. Fraser, I think that's a great place on which to end. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thanks to everybody who tuned in. And it remains for me only to say 
Until next time, stay secure. Stay secure.